All right, open in Bibles to Luke chapter 15. And um, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we thank you for saving grace. We thank you for sustaining grace. We thank you for your sufficient grace. And then we thank you, Father, for the grace that you give us to serve you. Lord, how we love you and how we thank you that, um, that you are our Father in heaven, that we can call you Abba, Father. And we thank you for this time of fellowship that we can have with you this morning as we commune with you through your precious word and as we get to know your son the lord jesus christ better and as we get to know him better we get to know you better father and and we thank you that through this lesson we're going to learn about your true attitude toward us toward all sinners that you truly do love us and that you rejoice over each and every sinner who repents and with a rejoicing that we can't even begin to understand one that we be, we need to to learn more about and to emulate and to feel in our own hearts because lord we want to be happy over that which makes you happy and father now i just would ask that you would help our minds to stay focused on what your holy spirit has to teach us through your word and that through this time together your son might be lifted up because he alone deserves any praise any glory that comes from our time here this morning for we do pray jesus in your name amen the great 15th chapter of luke's gospel opens with the lord's effect on two groups of people in verse 1 we find that publicans and sinners draw near unto him to hear him and it's always good when people draw near to jesus in order to hear him isn't it I'm so glad that that's why they drew near to him. Remember, he's in Perea, and he had great fruit in Perea. They're drawing near to him to hear him. While in verse 2, we find always the ubiquitous Pharisees and scribes, and they're there also, but what are they doing? Murmuring about him for the very reason that this man, they call Jesus, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now, the word receiveth in the Greek means that they're murmuring because he openly, warm, warmly, joyfully received such sinners. He gladly received them with like open arms of love. And uh, everywhere Jesus went, if you can imagine, if you can just visualize this back in that day, everywhere he went, there was a great spirit of joy and festivity among the people who surrounded him. And it was the pure joy of salvation and of healing, both physical and uh, spiritual. Can't you imagine the joy like when the, the man who had been born blind received his sight? A scene of great joy, right? When the man who was at the pool of Bethesda for 38 long years, impotent, was healed and could finally get up and walk. Think of lepers who are cleansed and people who couldn't walk getting their legs back and, and the little old woman who was bent over for 18 long years. There was always joy and when people got saved and knew their, their guilt and their sins were forgiven, their guilt was gone. Great joy everywhere around Jesus. And uh, so why wouldn't it be a time of, of rejoicing? He didn't, um, he didn't cater to the people. He didn't cater to the sinners. He didn't compromise with the sinners. But he did care for them, and they felt that care, and they, they understood that compassion that he had toward them, which was so different from their religious rulers. Did their religious rulers have compassion and care for them? No, all their religious rulers ever did was criticize them and, and uh, tried to keep them from him. So why wouldn't there be joy? Those who had, so to speak, been on Beth, death row, 
um, were set free. Those who had been held captives to their sins and to their various sicknesses and diseases, and some, some of them held captive to demon possession, were released. So it was, of all reasons, it was the greatest reason for joy and celebration. But this uh, strange behavior, the acceptance and all the joy in the eyes of the proud power mongers, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, could only mean that this man, this Nazarene, this man Jesus, uh, could not be godly. He was too comfortable with, he was too accepting of, and he was too compassionate uh, to sinners. So he couldn't possibly be of God in their minds much less God himself as he claimed to be. Because you see, their whole concept of God was that he hated sinners and therefore he he removed himself from their presence. In fact, this is a quote from their own teaching. This is rabbinic teaching. It says, quote, There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. End of quote. You see, somewhere along the line, they had decided to equate God's hatred of sin with his hatred for sinners. And is that, is that the truth of the matter? We know God hates sin, but does he hate the sinners? No. He so loved the world that he gave his only beloved son for the sinners. Uh, what is God's attitude towards sinners? Well, the simple and um, obvious truth of this question is given to the scribes and the Pharisees, and consequently to you and I, by Jesus in Luke 15 by way of an amazing trilogy of parables. Three parables. One is the parable of the, most of us know them, as the parable of the lost sheep. You know, one sheep out of 99, or one sheep out of 100 gets lost. Uh, The parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. So let's just read, at this point in time, Let's just read the first three verses to set the stage for the parables. I'm going to give you an introduction to the three parables, and then we're going to look at the first two and save the third for next week. So look with me at Luke 15, verses 1 to 3. It says, Then drew near unto him, that's unto Jesus, of course, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying... We'll stop right there, but then he gets into the parable of the lost sheep. All right, we find, as I mentioned, uh, publicans and sinners drawing near to hear Jesus, while the Pharisees and the scribes murmur about his association with such people, that he not only received them openly and warmly and compassionately, but what else did he do with them? He had the audacity to even eat with them. Now, they had questioned Jesus about this earlier in his ministry. If you remember back in Luke 5, right after he had called a man named Levi, who was a tax collector, to follow him, Levi became Matthew, right. And uh, Levi was so excited. See, there's always joy around Jesus. Levi became so excited about that, that the Lord would pick him to follow him. You know, he knew he was a sinner, that he threw a party. 
and he invited all of his other publican friends over for a feast to, to uh, honor Jesus, invited other tax collectors and sinners. And, uh, of course, there were the scribes and Pharisees outside, and they were saying, all these people are having such a good time. Why are they rejoicing? And they, they couldn't stand it. They're murmuring. And finally, they point blank asked Jesus this question in Luke 5.30. Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And his answer to them back at that time really should have settled the matter for them if they had really truly had ears to hear. Of course, they didn't. What was his answer? He said, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then later on in his ministry, he told them that the Son of Man hath come to seek and to save that which is lost. If a person doesn't admit that he's sick then he isn't going to willingly go to a physician because he doesn't realize he needs a cure, right? Only those who recognize their sickness are, are willingly going to go and see a doctor to get the cure. So uh, he was in, just because he was eating and drinking with publicans and sinners does not mean that he was in any wise a participant in their sin. It was just that his whole ministry, of course, was to bring sinners to repentance. And how can you bring them to repentance if you don't, associate with them and present to them the gospel in order to um, save them. Well, although the scribes and the Pharisees may have convinced themselves that their attitude towards sinners was merely a reflection of God's attitude towards sinners, the fact of the matter is that they were really only reflect, reflecting their own inner hearts of self-righteousness and pride, which left them, you know, they were so proud and they were so self-righteous that that, that didn't leave them any room to have compassion and concern for others. And have we not seen this over and over again? Instead of being happy and joyful for the poor man who had been born blind and he got his sight, they were just upset about it, you know, every, every time. And remember the guy in the, the ruler of the synagogue when the little old lady bent over for 18 years, could stand up for the first time in 18 years, and he just got upset that she was healed on the, on the Sabbath day. They didn't really have concern for their flocks at all. So we find that these three parables were given by the Lord. You know, everything the Holy Spirit does, when he inspired Luke to put these parables in the order that we find them, of course, he inspired, Jesus was inspired to give them in the order, I believe, that we find them. That was all purposeful because we find that these parables are given in purposeful order. First, the lost sheep, then the lost coin, then the lost son. Each one builds on the truth of the one that preceded it so that together they really show us a complete picture of God's attitude towards sinners and together they illustrate for us the great joy that fills God's heart and overspills onto all the rest of heaven over every single sinner who repents you know whenever that which is lost is found you could summarize Luke 15 remember Luke 15 always as the lost and found chapter okay you could summarize the whole chapter in three words lost found rejoicing lost found rejoicing okay it's just like i always think of john 15 when you hear john 15 does something pop into your mind the the vine the vine and the branches chapter the true vine now now always associate luke 15 with the lost and found chapter uh, so, um, and the final parable, which Lord willing, we will look at next week is really the climax of the three. It's, it is after reading John MacArthur's book through twice, I'll tell you, it is the most cleverly magnificent, masterfully presented teaching of all time. 
And uh, it is the one that's the final punch <laughs> on these scribes and Pharisees because it is the one that really reveals to them just how far from the truth about God's attitude towards sinners they had gone. I mean, they were just like totally the opposite of what God's real attitude was. Well, there are, before we get into the parables, there are some remarkable comparisons and analogies that I want to point out to you. One is that each one of these parables tells us, as I just said, about a lost and found experience that results in joy, over-the-top joy, we'll find out. Don't you get happy if you've lost something and you find it? Of course you do. You know, I, I lost a contact lens yesterday morning, right? Poor, poor Terry. This thing is, keeps popping. But um, right before the, the bell rang and the ladies were coming in for the lesson and um, I couldn't see. And I'd already called my husband and asked him, please run over here and bring my glasses. Cause I didn't know what happened. And I had Terry. I had my eyeball and she was looking in there to see if my contact lens had rolled up into the top of my eyeball. My mother lost an eye, a contact once. <laughs> getting off the subject but she lost she could never find it she thought it you know rolled up inside of her eye and we could never find it so she finally went to bed that night and then in the morning she woke up and it was right here on her nose and she said <laughs> she said she said I know what happened it rolled up inside my head went through my brain and came out my nose <laughs> but anyway um, I found yesterday I did find the contact lens and um, was able to save it it was in the sink in the bathroom. So I'm glad no lady went in, washed her hands, and washed my contact down the sink. But when you, when you lose something and you find it, there's a lot of rejoicing. And we see an awful lot of rejoicing in this, uh, in this parable. Look, for example, with me as I just talk about some of the verses. Look at verse 5. What do you find? The word rejoicing. You might want to circle some of these so you remember that this is a happy chapter. Verse 6, it says rejoice with me. Verse 7, likewise joy in heaven. Verse 9, rejoice with me. Verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Uh, look down at verse 23, let us eat and be what? Verse 23, let us eat and be merry. Verse 24, and they began to be merry. Verse 25, you might not be able to keep up with me, but verse 25 says there's music and dancing. What does that speak of? Joy, happiness, verse 29, make merry. Verse 32, it was meet that we should make merry and be glad. So this is a happy chapter. This is all about rejoicing. In fact, everybody in these three parables experiences joy except for one old sourpuss. And who is he? The elder brother in the third parable. Look at him, what it says of him in verse 28. What does it say? Verse 28, and he was angry. He refused to forgive his brother, his younger brother who had, you know, gone off and wound up in the pig pen and then came back home and his father forgave him, but the elder brother refused to forgive him and he showed great resentment in that lack of forgiveness toward his father. You know, if what made the father happy also made the elder brother happy, then he could have forgiven his brother because he saw how happy his father was that the younger brother had come home. That should have made him happy, but it didn't. And so he alone showed no joy. You know why? Because he didn't love the father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he didn't love his neighbor, his own brother, as himself. And so he was the only one in this whole chapter who had no joy. He was sick, you see. But he didn't know he was sick. He thought he was the righteous one. 
and uh, therefore he didn't admit his sickness, he didn't realize he had a need of the great physician, and therefore he did not repent. And who do you think he symbolizes? He symbolizes the very attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees. And remember, it's because of their murmuring over Jesus' his association with sinners. That's the reason for why the Lord gave these three parables. And, uh, so, and that's why they look down on Jesus, but we'll talk more about that next week. Well, we also want to see that there is a slightly different focus in each one of these three succeeding um, parables. The parable of the lost shepherd looking for his one sheep that wandered away from the other 99 emphasizes the loss. The first parable emphasizes the loss. The parable of the woman who is looking for her coin symbolizes the search the emphasis is on her diligent uh, search for the coin and the parable of the prodigal son emphasizes the restoration the repentance and the restoration of the son the younger son these three parables also demonstrate a growing intimacy we are taken in sequence from a pasture actually out in a wilderness pasture to a house where the woman's looking for the coin. So we go from a pasture to a house to a family, you know, the father and his two sons. And you could also say we go from a shepherd out in the field in the pasture to a housewife in the house to a father in the family. We go from a sheep to a, a very precious treasure to a son. And then we also notice there is a number decrease. In the first parable, the Lord spoke about one lost sheep out of how many? The same answer I got yesterday. Right. One lost sheep out of a hundred, so that's one one hundredth. And in the second parable, he talks about one lost coin out of ten, so that's one tenth. And in the last parable, he talks about one son out of two, so that's one half. And I guess what that tells us is that no matter what the percentage, God rejoices over each and every saved sinner. Twice in this chapter, he says, uh, like look at verse 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. And then he says it again in verse 10. Likewise I say unto you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Regardless of the percentage, every time a sinner repents, there is great joy in heaven and in the heart of God. Also, and this I find very interesting, there is uh, the redemptive work of all three members of the triune Godhead found in these three parables. The first parable emphasizes the work of God the Son, who we just saw in John chapter 10 is our good shepherd who is willing to, or was willing to give his life to save his lost sheep. Even if we were the only lost sheep in the whole world, he would have willingly gave his life for us. So the first parable emphasizes the work of God the Son, the re, you know, his work in redemption. The second parable emphasizes the work of God the Holy Spirit. You know, the woman, to find the coin, illuminated a lamp. She lit a candle, which is really, you know, not a candle like we think of it, a lamp which had a wick and you had to have oil in it. And it was, uh, and that speaks of the illuminating work of God the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit of God is often referred to as oil in the scripture. And the Holy Spirit is working through the woman 
The woman could represent either Israel, who's often spoken of as, or is spoken of as a woman in the scripture, or who else? The church. The church is referred to as a woman. God, the Holy Spirit, works through the church, doesn't he? To find the lost. And so the second parable represents the, the, redemptive, the part of God, the Holy Spirit, in, in the redemptive process. And the third parable emphasizes God the Father in the loving forgiveness and grace of the prodigal's father. So isn't that beautiful? All three members of, of the Godhead are represented in these three parables. And another interesting point to make is that the searches of the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, begin in the heart of God. The, the search and the whole redemption salvation process begins in the heart of God. The sheep is lost, okay? The sheep is just out there. And uh, it's the heart of the shepherd that results in the finding of the sheep, isn't it? You all know the parable before I've read. I am going to read them. But the, the, the process of, of redeeming that lost sheep begins in the heart of the shepherd. The shepherd is the one that goes out and looks for the sheep. The coin, likewise, is lost. And the coin doesn't do anything about trying to get back to the woman. It's, in, it's the heart of the woman that results in the finding of the coin. However, there's a change in the third parable. The restoration work is viewed from the heart of the prodigal son. He is the one who finally came to himself and remembered the goodness and, and the grace and you know how well he had it in the father's house. So he, it's the work started in his heart. He is the one who repented and returned to the Father. So in the three parables, we see both sides of the truth regarding the salvation of a sinner. The work always begins where? Just like in the three parables, always begins in the heart of God. Began in the heart of the good shepherd, began in the heart of the woman. But on the human side, you know, there's the divine sovereignty side and there's the human responsibility side. On the human side, there must be, and we talked about this several weeks ago in our lesson, the need to repent. On the human side, there must be genuine repentance of sin and a, you know, turning to God, which is what we see represented in the prodigal son. Well, actually, if we consider carefully Luke's inspired words um, right before Jesus spoke these three parables, we find that they're not isolated drawings, but rather they are three panels of one picture. And that's really what Luke tells us in verse 3 when he said, look at it, verse 3, Luke writes this, he said, and he, Jesus, spake this parable. Now Jesus went on to give three parables, but Luke says it's one parable. So they're, they're really three panels of one picture, one big parable. Now some people have actually said there's four panels that there are really four parables and I guess you really could say that because you have the parable of the lost lamb you have the parable of the lost lucre you know money you could call it lucre I'm sticking with L's here you have the, the parable of the lost lad the, the younger son and you really also have a parable about the lost love the parable of the elder son so really you could say there's four parables in these um, in this chapter well with that um, introduction, which is pretty long, let's get into the lesson. Let's look at the first parable, the parable I'm calling them, let's see, the parable of the wanted lost sheep, the parable of the woman's lost silver, and the parable of the wasteful last son. How many of you know what the word prodigal actually means? Prodigal. Wasteful. I kind of thought it meant 
wandering. And then we looked it up in the dictionary. It actually means wasteful. And he did. He wasted his father's inheritance, didn't he? And his, and his life until he repented. All right, let's look at the first parable in verses 4 to 7. Jesus starts by saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And now here's where he's... um, Talking to the scribes and Pharisees, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Well, here in this first image, the Lord, as he had done back in John chapter 10, painted a very familiar pastoral picture. You know, people back in that day and in that culture were as familiar with sheep as we are probably with with automobile you know with cars sheep were just everywhere in that culture so when he talks about sheep they understand and notice how he's such a masterful teacher just an amazing teacher none was ever better but notice how he used a term that immediately got those to whom he was talking involved in what he was going to say he 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 said what man of you now you see what that did it immediately got everybody to take a personal interest in what he was about to teach them he was making the parable into a question how many times does he answer questions with questions and here we're seeing he's he's making a parable into a question that would cause each and every one of his listeners to analyze what he's going to say um, by their own response what would he individually what would he, each one of those scribes and pharisees for example do if one of his sheep had wandered off and all of them were supposed to be shepherds weren't they the scribes and the Pharisees were to, supposed to be the shepherds of their, the flock of Israel. What would they do? Well, if they were worth their, their salt as a true sheep keeper, they would go after the lost sheep in order to restore it. You know, he would leave the rest of the flock, the other 99, in a safe place. And don't get the idea that the shepherd just went off to get that one wandered little lamb and left the rest of the flock in a dangerous wilderness. I know it says the word wilderness, but in the Greek, it's the same word that back in John chapter six, when the Lord Jesus fed the 5,000, remember it says they were in a desert place and there was much grass. That's the same word. It just speaks of a wilderness, meaning that it was an open, barren place. It doesn't mean that there were a lot of wolves around that could attack the other 99. A good shepherd would not leave his other 99 sheep in a place of great danger in order to go out and rescue one wandered sheep. A good shepherd would, first of all, make sure that his 99 sheep were in a safe place. And remember how we talked about country folds, sheep folds, and village sheep folds? He probably had a country uh, fold out there, you know, rocks in a place. And maybe he even, if he was alone, maybe he, he boarded up the entranceway, the doorway with more rocks. Just make sure the sheep were all safe before he left to look for the wandering sheep. Or perhaps he made sure there was another shepherd around who could watch his sheep while he was gone. But whatever the case might have been, the parable is to show the shepherd's care for the lost sheep not his disregard of the other sheep. Some people get all hung up on parables. You know, you can take parables to extreme. They're to show one main point, and his main point is his concern and his care for the lost sheep, not that he's neglecting the other 99. 
Well, from our past study on John chapter 10, the Good Shepherd sermon, we know that the sheep that sheep are not the most clever animal that God ever created, are they? Not by a long shot. Um, their natural inclination is to stay clustered together in flocks. But, as we know, every now and then, sheep are known to wander. You know, actually, the scripture says, all we like sheep, if we live long enough, we all <laughs> wander. All we like sheep have gone astray. Um, so every now and then, a sheep will wander off and, from the flock. And, you know, I, I think their head must be down and is looking at this little green patch of grass. And mm, there's another green patch and he goes ahead, you know. And, and pretty soon, before, before he knows it, he realizes that he is, is separated from the others. But he might not realize it until it's too late. And uh, instead of then having the good sense to retrace his footsteps or her footsteps back to where it had come from, it will stray farther and farther away until it is in some kind of grave danger because sheep cannot make it on their own for very long at all. For one thing, they, um, they may be attacked by a predator because they have no defense mechanism at all. We talked about this, didn't we? You know, they have no sharp teeth. They have no odor that they give off to repel animals. They have uh, no claws. They have no way to defend themselves whatsoever. So they could die from an attack of a predator. Or even if they're, they're wandered off and they're in a lush place with a lot of grass and, and a running stream of water, they can still die of... Um, malnutrition. They might eat the grass, but they, they're afraid of running water. Remember, that's why in the 23rd Psalm it says, he leadeth me beside still waters, because the sheep are afraid of running water. So even if they're dying of thirst, they will not drink from running water. Also, they, have, they cannot get up if they fall on their backs. They're, like, they're kind of like a turtle. If they fall on their backs, they absolutely cannot get up. They need, they're totally dependent on the shepherd, aren't they? And that's, that's why I think the Lord used them as a picture of us, because we are totally dependent. <laughs> we're defenseless and we're dependent creatures. We need the good shepherd. Um, and also sheep will die from stress. They'll die from the stress of being separated from the rest of the, the flock. The poor little uh, ewe lamb out there, you know, all of a sudden she'll realize, oh, I'm all alone out here, and she'll get so stressed out that she'll die. It's amazing. So it was the shepherd's duty and also his love for the sheep that would, the good shepherd, that would compel him to go out in search of his lost sheep. And even though his search might be long and it might be at risk to his own life, many shepherds would give their lives for their sheep um, and exhausting and dangerous, yet he would search, a good shepherd would search and search and search until one of two things happened. He either found the sheep or he found evidence of the sheep's death. You know, let's see it the bones and the wool laying there or something. And the happy news in this parable is that he found the lost animal. And when he found the lost animal, what did he do? He lifted it up and laid it on his own shoulders, rejoicing, it tells us in verse 5. And that's the part of the parable that is emphasized, the joyous finding of the sheep. This is the part of the parable that tells us about God's attitude toward the sinner. And we're all sinners because all we like sheep have gone astray. Notice that rather than, have you ever lost a child? 
and then found the child. I know one time, and I probably told you this before, but when we were up in Chicago years ago and my daughter Connie was probably about four or five years old, she purposely hid from me in a big department store in the racks of clothing, you know, the dresses and stuff. She was hiding in there, and I just huh, went to pieces, and I had everybody in the department store looking for her, and she's in there laughing, thinking it's a riot. <laughs> well, you know, uh, when you finally find the child, what is your first inclination? <laughs> you know, you just, want, I wanted to kill her. But rather than beating the sheep for its waywardness and its rebellion for having strayed off or giving it, you know, a long lecture on the consequences of wandering astray or giving at least, you know, a long mean frown and saying something, boy, are you going to get it when we get home? <laughs> you are going to be excommunicated from the synagogue. You're going to be ostracized from the rest of the 99 forever. I will never forgive you. You have sinned greatly. You will, ne you will have permanent time out for the rest of your life. <laughs> Rather than doing all that, what does the shepherd do in this parable? Of course, a picture of Jesus. He, he rejoices. Well, of course, now there was great rejoicing when I did find Connie. Great rejoicing. And of course, my first inclination was not to beat her. That came later. My first inclination was to hug her and love her. And thank God she hadn't been kidnapped. You know, so the shepherd would, would hug the sheep. He would stroke his wool and, and, and he'd look him over to make sure there weren't any bruises or broken bones. And, and then, you know, that little poor little lamb had to be weary, all stressed out you know, and weary. Maybe it was up on a cliff somewhere. And rather than make that poor little lamb walk all the back, way back home, what does the shepherd do? Carries him. He lovingly lifts him up and he, he would put him on, you know, the back of his neck so that the, the sheep's, the little lamb's legs were hanging here. And he carried the sheep all the way back home. And isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does with us when he finds us? You know, we don't find him. He finds us. He lifts us up on his strong and mighty, powerful shoulders. And it is in his strength that we are carried all the way home. He is our strength, isn't he? He is our refuge. He is our mighty high tower. He is our shield. Did you know that one of the earliest symbols of uh, Christianity, even really before the, the sign of the cross and before the ichthus, you know, the, the fish sign, was this picture of a shepherd carrying a sheep on the back of its neck, you know, on his, on his shoulders with the legs hanging down. You've all, you can all picture that. You've seen pictures of that. You're visualizing it right now. But that was one of the earliest pictures of Christianity that there was. You know, it was a picture that had been given throughout the Old Testament that when the Messiah would come, he would be the good shepherd. Well, notice that the shepherd brought the sheep, and this is something I hadn't realized until... Um, I restudied it. Maybe I realized it last time, but I forget, forget, you know, we all forget, don't we? We have to relearn things. But the shepherd didn't take the sheep back to the wilderness, back to the pasture land with the other 99 sheep. Where did he take the sheep? Look at verse six. And when he, the shepherd, cometh home, he took the shepherd back to 
I mean, he took the sheep back to his own home, not to the pasture, not to the other 99 sheep out in the, in the, in the, in the wilderness or the country sheepfold. He brought the sheep to his own house, his own home. So you see, and then, that, and then he called up all his friends, you know, to have a party. So, so the sheep is in a better position than it was before he was rescued. After he wandered away and was restored, he is now in a better position. Did you ever stop to think about the fact that getting saved gives us more than what we lost in Adam in the fall? Think about it. God, God had, you know, why did Adam and Eve have to fall? Well, God is in control. He still sits on the throne. He did from the beginning. He had all this. He knew everything that was going to happen, and he had all orchestrated it so that we are in a better position when we're restored after the fall than we would have been before the fall. Because if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, where would we still be living? Or where would we live throughout all of eternity, I should say? Here on planet earth now it'd be a perfect earth and be wonderful and lush and but we would live here forever with all the animals and i like animals you know they wouldn't be vicious or anything well we'd live down here on planet earth with all the animals as opposed to because of the fall and because of the lord providing salvation now we can spend eternity where in heaven with all of the holy angels now, wouldn't you rather, I'd rather exchange the animals for the holy angels any day and to be in the presence continually of God the Father. You know, when Adam and Eve lived down here in the Garden of Eden, God would come down and walk with them in the cool of the day, you know, and eat fellowship with them at a certain time of the day. But in heaven, we are going to have continual fellowship with God, aren't we? So you see, we get more from the fall and restoration than we would have had at the beginning. That's what happened with this little lost lamb. He gets to go home with the shepherd. And notice, too, that the rejoicing of the shepherd did not begin when he got home, did it? When did the shepherd begin his rejoicing? As soon as he found the sheep. It actually began. He was rejoicing in his heart as soon as he found him. Not when he got home, but when he did get home, he wanted to share his joy. You see, his joy just could not be contained because his joy was overspilling. And he wanted to share his joy of finding his lost sheep with others. He couldn't contain it. So what did he do? Well, he called together all his friends and his neighbors, and he invited them to come over and rejoice with him. Now, this is the, the kind of overflowing joy that is characteristic of the Lord's earthly ministry to sinners. You see, it was a joy that just could not be squelched in a box. Sad to say, that's what we do. I know a lot of times, just because I'm in a church setting, my, my joy might be just overspilling, and I want to sometimes just jump up and down, and I get so excited about things, but... You know, it's kind of a peer pressure thing. You sit there and, and you squelch the joy in your heart. And, you know, I don't want to look too fanatic here. Uh, <laughs> like the, the Samaritan woman, when she got saved out at the well, she didn't just say, oh, this is so great, and squelch all the joy in her heart. She was overspilling with it, wasn't she? She just had to share it with somebody. So she left her water pot and she ran all the way home to share it with everybody in her, in her hometown village there of Sychar. And this is the kind of joy that he was talking about. It's a contagious joy. You know, a lot of times Jesus told people, don't say anything. After he, he uh, raised Jairus' daughter from the, the dead, didn't he say, now don't tell anybody? What? 
it's hard to keep that kind of joy to yourself. You just want to run out and tell the world. People who were ministered to by Jesus couldn't keep it to themselves, sometimes even when he asked them to. And uh, so Jesus was teaching here that joy is the natural response of finding something that is lost, that was lost. And even he's telling the scribes and Pharisees, what man of you, you know, wouldn't even you guys, you little sour pusses, wouldn't you experience joy? If you found something that belonged to you that was lost, and yet they were not willing in their own twisted theology to attribute this natural response of theirs to want the one who had created them. You see the illogic of it? If God created us in his own image and we get joyful about finding something that is lost, doesn't that mean that God rejoices in finding something that is lost you know think about it can't you guys identify here what's the matter with you i'm not talking to you i'm jesus talking to them (laughs) but instead you see in their in their minds they 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 equated god's hatred of sin with god's hatred of the sinners they they decided that god hated the strayed sheep you know, the out-and-out sinners. And he only experienced joy when they were properly punished and ultimately perished, not when they were restored. Totally upside-down theology. But Jesus' ministry, his whole ministry embodied a truth that went really beyond their understanding. The truth is that although God is angry with the wicked every day, the scripture tells us, He hates wickedness. He hates sin. He hates evil. Yet, when when someone repents of their sin and turns to him, what does he always do? He warmly, lovingly, mercifully, just like the prodigal's father we'll see next week, joyfully welcomes them, you know, with open arms. He runs out to meet them. He loves it when sinners repent. It is not his will. He doesn't take joy in the lost perishing it's not his will that any should perish but that all would come to repentance well to make sure that the scribes and pharisees got his point about the attitude and the rejoicing of the shepherd being a picture of god's attitude and god's rejoicing uh, over lost sinners jesus added the last verse of the parable where he said likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over 99 uh, just persons which need no repentance do you know what heaven gets excited about it is not who wins the super bowl it is not who wins the oscar awards in hollywood or um even who wins the presidential primaries it's not um who wins the next american idol contest That which is the cause of great rejoicing in heaven. And in the heart of, really, the rejoicing starts in the heart of the triune Godhead. And then it overspills onto all the holy angels. What is it that makes heaven happy? Makes God happy? The salvation of the lost sinner. So don't you know there's an awful lot of partying going on in heaven? (laughs) There's a lot of celebration in heaven because he tells us that every time a sinner repents. And I would hope that... Somewhere on the globe, almost every minute, some sinner is repenting and therefore God is rejoicing and all the angels of heaven are rejoicing. 
And it's really, as I said, it's the joy of God himself. So what does that tell us about the attitude of God toward the sinner? Yes, he hates sin, but he loves sinners so much that he willingly laid down his own life to rescue them, to restore them. All right. Now, in fact, Jesus said that God's joy over the salvation of one sinner is far greater than there would be if 99 righteous people could be found who needed no repentance. Now, some people have had a hard time with this particular part of the parable. But the fact of the matter is that there are no such creatures, are there? Because there is none righteous, no, not one. But this is exactly what the Pharisees, how the Pharisees saw, saw themselves. They saw themselves as 99 righteous people who, who um, needed no repentance. So in their minds, they would surely think that if there were 99 of them standing together, obeying all of the external trivialities of the law, that they would certainly bring much more joy into the heart of God than, let's say, one publican such as Levi, who Jesus you know, turned his name to Matthew, um, repenting and turning from his crooked, lucrative tax business and following the Lord. You know, if, if they could put that on a scale, they'd say, oh, well, certainly 99 of us righteous men bring far more, more joy into the heart of God than one sinner. But is that the truth of the matter? Is that how it is? No, it's totally the opposite. The one repentant sinner brings the joy to God's heart, whereas the 99 righteous, who aren't really righteous but think they are righteous, really grieve the heart of God. So it's totally upside down from what they would think. Well, without pausing for a response from his listeners to the first parable, Jesus goes right on to the second parable, and he makes the identical point that he did in the first, except he changes the, pl the, um, the setting. Something, again, that is lost gets found, and what's the result? There's great joy. And uh, so now let's look at the parable of the woman's lost silver, and for this we look at verses 8 to 10. He says, Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. All right, this time you notice how the Lord Jesus, again, he gets personal, but who does he draw into his, his teaching this time? Women. What woman of you? Now, there were women, probably, I'm sure there were. There were women, because he wouldn't have said this otherwise, in his audience. Not only were there scribes and Pharisees and disciples and a multitude of people, but a lot of women. And so now he's, because they couldn't probably identify that much with the shepherd situation, because shepherds were usually men. And so now he's addressing women, and he says, what woman having ten pieces of silver? You know, if she lost one, she'd certainly rejoice if she found it. So the plot is similar, except... Um, now, it's a woman who is the, the main character here, and she's lost this piece of silver, but she knows she's lost it in her house. And so she lights a, a lamp to search for it. Now, you have to understand that even if it was the daytime, houses in Israel back in that day were dark because, that, well, the only way they could um, let light in would be to open the front door 
And if a house had a window, it was a very small window. At the widest, it would be like 18 inches. So even if it was daytime, in order to look for her coin, she would have to light a lamp. Also, uh, she, it says she swept her house so that uh, in her diligent search, she doesn't miss an inch. She would even have to, you know, move her, her, her furniture, move the bedding and everything as she's diligently looking for this coin. And to get a fuller picture, we have to understand that the floors in most of the houses back then were beaten earth. You know, they would beat the ground, just the dirt, until it was real hard. And then they would cover the, the ground, the earth, with a layer of straw. Now, the straw would keep down the dust level. You can imagine if you had a dirt floor the dust level in your house would be pretty bad also the the straw would help to overcome the cold and dampness so it would really kind of like be looking for a needle in a haystack and you'd think the coin would show up right away it was silver it was a denarius but obviously this coin had somehow fallen through the straw was underneath the straw so this was a diligent search she had to go through her whole house you know take up the straw maybe the coin had even worked its way down into the first layer of the dirt i don't know but uh she stayed on the job just like the shepherd she stayed on the job until she found it now unlike the shepherd searching for his lost sheep her motive was not love for or pity for the coin itself right because a coin you know the shepherd might have loved his sheep they knew their sheep they called their sheep by name so you can understand that a shepherd would love his sheep but you can't really picture a woman loving unless she's into idol worship, but, you know, loving, loving her coin so much. Really, the motivation of the woman to do such a thorough house cleansing was the preciousness of the coin to herself. She was the one who was suffering from the loss of the coin. You know, the coin itself was not suffering. Let me, let me put it that way. The sheep was probably suffering from her stress or it's his stress, but the coin isn't being stressed out. The woman is the one who is suffering here. The, the coin, why was the coin so precious to her? We find out in the Greek it's a denarius. Now, that's just a day's wages. So it's not like the coin was worth a million dollars or something. So it's not the net worth of the coin that has her going through her house so thoroughly. You see, it was, we have, again, we have to understand the culture to get the full picture here. It was uh, the ancient sign of a married woman back in that day to wear a headdress or a, a headband you know on special occasions like if they went to somebody else's wedding all the married wom- women would wear a headband that consisted of 10 silver coins that were linked together on a silver chain or on a piece of material it was actually you know like women today when they get married girls wear a tiara a lot of times well back in that day on their wedding day they wore their wedding headdress which consisted of it was part of their dowry of these 10 silver coins. So um, it was it signified to her that she was a married woman that she had been chosen by her beloved bridegroom, her husband. It was sort of equivalent to our our wedding rings today. And here I'm going to do what Jesus did, you know, and draw you guys into this. What woman of you wouldn't turn your house upside down if you lost your wedding ring? Have any of you ever lost your wedding ring? And you knew you lost it in your house? Wouldn't you move the furniture? You know, the best thing is just not take it off. But um, if you lost your wedding ring, surely you would do everything you possibly could to, to find it in your house. 
Um, if it's lost somewhere else, you know, you might not be able to. But then we also have to st- understand something else about that culture. It w- this is a superstitious thing, but it was believed that if a woman lost one of the ten coins from her wedding headdress, her wedding headband, that it meant she had been unfaithful to her husband. Uh-oh. Now you understand why this woman was diligently searching her house for her one lost coin. She needed to find it before who came home. (laughs) She really needed to find it before her husband came home. Well, the coin, like the strayed sheep, represents the lost, the sinner who is in a fallen state and defiled by the dirt of this earth. Sin doesn't purify, does it? Sin pollutes. When that coin fell, we've all fallen in Adam. Uh, When that coin fell, it didn't get shinier. It got dirtier from falling onto the dirt of the floor. But to God, the sinner is not only a suffering being like a lost sheep on whom he has great compassion, but a sinner is also a precious being created in his own image. In the first parable, you see the lost soul is viewed from man's perspective. The lost sheep suffers and needs restoration. It needs salvation. In this second parable, the lost soul is viewed from God's perspective. You see, the lost soul is a great loss to God himself, and we hardly ever think of it that way. When we think of lost souls, we usually think of that individual suffering forever and ever in the lake of fire, don't we? But how often do we stop to think about the, the grief and the loss that a lost soul is to the heart of God himself, who willingly laid down his own life for that lost soul? It grieves God every time a sinner dies without ever repenting and turning to him. And the lost, by the way, are found everywhere. Now think about this. I'm giving you a lot to think about here this morning. But they are lost. The lost are everywhere, aren't they? Okay, the lost are lost out in the wilderness. You know, both those who strayed from Judaism and were the outrightly visible sinners. Like think of the wilderness right now and think of Judaism. I remember we talked about the country sheepfold. It represented a picture of Judaism. And only those that would come out of that sheepfold and go into the, the city sheepfold, which represented the church. And so it was kind of a good thing when they were excommunicated because then Jesus could bring them into his fold of the church. Anyway, it gets really complicated. But they are lost out in the wilderness. Those who, are, who have strayed from Judaism like the lost sheep that strayed. And everybody could see they had strayed. They were like an outright sinner a prostitute, a publican, you know, a murderer, an adulterer. Um, And the lost were also those who stayed within the fold of Judaism, represented by the 99 sheep or the scribes and Pharisees. They were, even though they were still there, they were still sinners because all are sinners. They were out in the wilderness, they're sinners, even though they didn't view themselves as sinners, they were really the worst kind of sinners, because pride is the number one sin God hates of all, and they were full of pride. Well, the lost are also found in the woman's house. Do you know we have lost in the church? Hasn't Satan oversowed Christendom with many, many tares? So they're, lo- they're lost everywhere, and the lost also, you know, the woman could picture Israel, as I said. And the lamp in this parable, she had to light a lamp 
The, the lamp speaks symbolically not only of the word of God, because thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, but the lamp also represents the Holy Spirit. Because to light a lamp, you needed to have oil, and oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's the Holy Spirit's work to make a diligent, thorough, and unceasing search for soils. In the soils of our heart. Well, well, the woman of the Lord's parable um, was finally rewarded for her diligent labor in that she found the coin, just like the shepherd found the uh, sheep in the first par- parable. And she was so overflowing with her joy that what does she do? She calls together, verse 9, her friends and her neighbors. And in the Greek, you don't notice this. You can't see this. But in the Greek, friends and neighbors are friendesses and neighboresses. They're all females. She doesn't call the men over. She calls all the women over who could identify with her rejoicing. Oh, you know, whew, my husband isn't going to think that I was unfaithful to him. And so she has a big party. Now, can you imagine getting a card in the mail from me saying, come to my house, we're going to have a, uh, that which was lost is found rejoicing party. You'd think, wow, that's a little weird. <laughs> I can understand if Catherine lost her contact lens, you know, that she's had, or if Catherine lost her wedding ring, that she's really happy that she found it. But to have a big party and invite all of you guys over to celebrate with me, that's a little bit over the top, isn't it? It's a little bit extreme. Um, But that's the point that the Lord is trying to make in all three of these parables. The excessive joy of the celebration for that which was lost being found. We can identify with the real life scenarios of a shepherd finding a wandered sheep and being happy about it. And we can identify with a woman finding her coin for her wedding band, you know, and being happy about it. But we really kind of sit back and say, well, it's just really um, over the top to have such euphoric, ecstatic, extreme exaltation to the point that you want to call all over all your friends to celebrate with you. I mean, that kind of stretches the reality of these situations. But that, again, is exactly what Jesus was trying to teach here. A person's sense of exhilaration would have to be immense indeed for him or her to do this. But that's exactly God's attitude toward the sinner. You know, we're all convicted here. I know I was studying this. Because if somebody goes forward in church to get saved, or I hear about somebody getting saved, or I hear about a revival somewhere where like maybe 10 people, I say, hey, that is wonderful. Isn't that great? And that's kind of like just the end of it. But that is not what goes on in the heart of God. It's over-the-top, extreme overflowing joy in his heart and if that's the kind of joy he has isn't that the kind of joy we should be having down here i think we probably all stand convicted of that well when a sinner repents there's so much over the top joy in the heart of god that it just spills out on all those who are present you notice that it doesn't say let's see what verse is this 10 that there is joy in the angels or that it doesn't say there is a joy, there's a joy of the angels? What does it actually say? There is joy in the presence of the angels. That says that the joy emanates from the one in whose presence the angels stand. In other words, the joy doesn't start in the heart of the angels. 
The joy starts in the heart of God, and, it, and because the angels love God so much, that jo- they're happy because God is happy. And that's how it should be for you and I. We should be happy about that which makes God happy. Just like we should grieve over that which grieves God, we should be happy over that which... And that's why we should be busy doing that which makes God happy. We should be more concerned about restoration and giving out the gospel so that more of the lost are found. Well, you see, all of this was a rebuke of the scribes to the scribes and the Pharisees who were over there, you know, murmuring and self-righteously criticizing Jesus for his interest in sinners. But their attitude towards sinners and their attitude about themselves as not being sinners was really the worst type of sinners of all because their attitude, therefore, brought absolutely no joy to the heart of God. Rather than bringing joy to the heart of God, them over there, you know, criticizing his very beloved son was bringing terrible grief to the heart of God. No joy whatsoever. So their attitude, what he's showing here, is that their attitude is about as far from God's attitude as you could possibly get. And, and that's why, remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the heaven of God. What is God's attitude towards sinners? He hates their sin, but he loves them, and absolutely nothing, nothing brings him greater joy than when one repents of his or her sin and turns to him in forgiveness and salvation. And if that's what makes God happy, that's what we should be busy doing, shouldn't we? I'm convicted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the depth of your word. We can... Such simple stories, Lord, but they are so deep. They're unfathomable. They just teach us so much. We could go on and on and on. We just thank you for the depth and the richness of your word and how it just shows us our great need of you. And we thank you and we praise you that you care so much about us, that you are our good shepherd, and that that when we turn to you, that gives you joy. I just can't imagine that kind of love. But I'm thankful that that's what the, the word teaches us, and that's the kind of God you are, a God who loves unconditionally. And, Lord, if what makes you happy is the salvation of the lost, help us to each be busy doing just that, giving them the good news and seeing sinners repent, especially in these dark and evil days. This world is so full of lost people, Lord. Help us to be busy trying to do your work while there's still time. Lord, we love you. We thank you for sending Jesus to save us. I thank you for every woman here. I pray that you keep her from the evil one, protect her, help her to be light this week. For we pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.